Kia ora. you're listening to an Auckland Libraries podcast. Welcome to the Heritage Talks podcast, bringing you the best in local and family history from Aotearoa New Zealand, the Pacific and beyond. Your heritage now. No mai, haere mai. In this talk, oral historians Ruth Greenaway and Megan Hutching discuss the history of the Anglican Trust for Women and Children, which began with an orphan home in the central city in 1858 and now works with its community in South Auckland. While society has changed since the middle of the 19th century, the problems of today's clients are similar to the issues confronting those who came for help in the early days. Kia ora everyone, um, it's Megan here. I'm going to start off and then um, in the 1970s, I'm going to hand over to Ruth. Rather than trying to race through the 164 years uh, history of the Anglican Trust for Women and Children, Ruth and I thought that what we do is today is concentrate on the activities of some of the women um, who were involved in the Trust over the years and their roles. Um, I'm going to begin, though, with Enid Cooper. So, Ruth, could you could we have the next slide? So this is Enid on the right here, and this book wouldn't have been written without a bequest from her. She was a registered dietitian who taught dietetics, and she left a large bequest to the Anglican Trust for Women and Children, which the Trust Board decided to use to record the history of the organisation. And they commissioned, initially they commissioned Ruth to record some interviews with current and former staff and with some clients. And the interviews were used as primary resources for the later chapters of the book. But today I'm going to talk about some of the women involved in the three precursors to the Anglican Trust, the orphan home, the children's home and the women's home. And the women's home was later known as uh, St. Mary's Homes, St. Mary's Homes. Uh, Ruth, could we have the next slide? Okay, so in England before her marriage, Eliza Cowie had worked as a district visitor in the parish of Rustall near Tunbridge Wells. And what this meant was going into poor households, making friends with the wife and children, noting the state of the home and organising aid such as food and blankets. Eliza probably also taught Sunday school at this time. In her biography of Eliza Cowie, Beverly Reeves concludes that those years as a parish visitor not only gave Eliza an occupation before her marriage, but provided valuable training for her role as a bishop's wife because she met and spent time with people from all walks of life. After she and her husband, the new bishop, William Cowie, and their family arrived in Auckland in February 1870, it was expected that Eliza would interest herself in the welfare activities of the Anglican Church in the Auckland Diocese. Supporting unmarried mothers and their babies was a less popular aspect of these sorts of activities, alongside rescuing, and I'm putting that in inverted commas, female sex workers and teaching them skills so that in the future they could earn a living more and doing more respectable work. In June 1869, Lady Martin and other women had set up a women's home in Parnell, which unfortunately closed after only nine months because of the difficulty of getting funding, of finding suitable premises and finding a matron to run it. In August 1883, however, a committee was appointed to consider re-establishing the women's home. They asked Eliza Cowie, Celia Kinder and Kate McCosh-Clark to join them. 
And Eliza was elected the superintendent of the new home and Celia Kinder was the secretary treasurer. And they were later joined by Eliza Kinderdine. And so in June 1884, a new women's home opened in Parnell, funded by the interest from a gift of a thousand pounds given by Elizabeth Somerville, who had wanted her money to be used to establish a home for, and again I quote, fallen women. That's to say, to be a refuge for pregnant single women and prostitutes. So the top photo here is Mary Ann Martin, who helped, had helped to set up the first home in 1863. On the bottom left is Celia Kinder, who was born in Paihia in 1837. She was the daughter of Alfred Nesbitt Brown, who was a church missionary society missionary, and his wife Charlotte. The family moved to Tauranga soon after Celia was born and then to Auckland. And in 1859, Celia married John Kinder, who'd come to Auckland in 1855 as the headmaster of the Church of England Grammar School in Eyre Street in Parnell. Celia and her sister Fanny taught the younger boys at the school. And then in 1872, the Kinders moved to St John's Theological College when John Kinder became master there. Celia, who's been described as lively, witty, intelligent, and good fun, was a great support to Eliza Cowie during the years on the Women's Home Committee. And she died in April, 1928. On the bottom right, you can see a photo of Eliza Kinderdine. And Eliza was the daughter of James Priest, who was another missionary with the Church Missionary Society, and his wife, Mary Ann Williams. Eliza met her husband, Dr. Thomas Bruton Kinderdine in Otahuhu, and family legend has it that Eliza went to Thomas's surgery, and after her visit, he said, that's the girl I'm going to marry. The couple did marry in 1859 and had 11 children, two of whom died as infants. As well as her long involvement with the women's home, Eliza was a founding member of the Auckland Ladies Benevolent Society and the Young Women's Christian Association. And her husband, Thomas, was one of the founders of the Orphan Home, which I'll talk about soon, and an honorary medical officer for the women's home in its early years. So as well as these women who were involved in the administration of the women's home, there were women in the home as well. They could only be admitted with the approval of the superintendent, who, as I said, was initially Eliza Cowie and the chaplain, and they had to sign a pledge that they would stay there for six months. The Homes Admissions book gives an insight into why women ended up there, with reasons including pregnancy, homelessness, prostitution, poverty, or abandonment. Unmarried mothers could live at the home after the birth of their child, and after six months, they were expected to arrange for their baby to be boarded out and to go out to work themselves or to return home to their family. Women were admitted only once. If they became pregnant a second time, they had to make other arrangements. It wasn't what we would consider now an easy life at the home. The day's schedule was regimented. The women got up at 6 a.m. and had breakfast at 7.30, which was followed by prayers. Dinner was at noon and tea at 5.30, followed by evening prayers, and then bedtime was straight after that. All of the residents were expected to attend prayers in church on Sundays. They spent their days doing laundry work, ironing and sewing. They washed the home's laundry on Mondays, laundry for paying customers on Tuesdays and Wednesdays, and did ironing for the other three days. If they were not washing or ironing, they did needlework in the afternoon. One woman looked after the babies while the others worked, and they all took turns to do the, house, the home's cooking, 
housework and nursing if required. They were allowed visitors on Sunday afternoons between three and five under the matron's supervision. To us, it sounds rather prison-like, especially when we learn that the outside doors were kept locked and some women did find it too restrictive and ran away. For example, there was a 16-year-old girl who went to the home in June in 1885, but ran away in August and then again in September. And 70% of the women left before the six months that they had pledged to remain there had expired. So why did they go? Well, other than marrying the father of their child, there were few options for women who became pregnant before marriage at that time. Illegal abortions were possible, infanticide also happened, and some arranged to give their babies away, but many remained responsible for their baby's upbringing. Most women in such a position boarded their children out, that's to say, they paid someone to look after them while they were working. It was an insecure way of life. Often the places where the children were boarded out were unsatisfactory, and if a woman was out of work and couldn't pay the board, she would have to take the child back. Fathers were technically liable for child support, but this was difficult for women to enforce, and often the father moved away to another part of New Zealand or to Australia. So their options in terms of a place to live, especially if their family decided they didn't want them at home, were fairly minimal, which is why the women's home served a purpose. Beginning in September 1894, Eliza Cowie, Celia Kinder and Eliza Kinderdine got some help with their work with these women. Reverend Littleton Fitzgerald, who was the vicar of St Matthews in the central city, was aware of the poor conditions in which people who were living in the narrow alleys and slums around his church. He'd come to Auckland from Melbourne, where he'd witnessed the work done by the Mission to the Streets and Lanes, a small community of women that had been founded to relieve distress in one of Melbourne's poorest slums. Fitzgerald called a public meeting at St Matthews in September 1894 to discuss the possibility of mission work with a focus on two main areas, work among the poor and rescue work in connection with the women's home. Both the Bishop and Eliza Cowie supported the idea and Francis Williams, Miriam Goss and Miss Salmon, we don't know her first name, moved into a rented cottage in Grey Street, now Grey's Avenue, and began their work. Grey Street and its surrounds were notorious at the time for being the site of brothels and for such goings on as drunkenness, violence and petty theft. And the missioners took over the role of being the link between the streets and the women's home and of encouraging pregnant, unmarried women and prostitutes to take refuge there. Saving the City, which is Margaret McClure's history of the Order of the Good Shepherd, as it came to be known, covers in detail the work of the missioners with the poor of central Auckland. They established nurseries and kindergartens and were involved in the children's home after it was established. In the 1920s, the sisters took over the management of St Mary's homes in Otahuhu, which I'll talk about soon. And the bottom photograph here shows Mother Hannah Dawson of the Good Shepherd Sisters as matron at St Mary's home and her staff, probably in the 1930s. The top photograph is of Sister Cecil Kenyon. Cecil Kenyon's date and place of birth are unknown, but she seems to have arrived in Auckland from Australia in 1901. Although Sister Cecil had an association with the Order of the Good Shepherd in Auckland, she didn't ever live in the community in Grey Street. Her entire time in Auckland was spent living in the children's home, first in the Air Street premises and later at Richmond Road. 
She'd been asked by Bishop Cowie to take charge of the children's home soon after she arrived in Auckland, and it became so associated with her that she it was often referred to as Sister Cecil's home. I won't be talking too much about the children's home today, except to say that it too was set up by Eliza Cowie, initially to look after the children of women who had been in the women's home after they left it. It began in Brighton Road in 1893, then moved to the top of Eyre Street, before moving to Richmond Road in June 1909. And the building is still there in Richmond Road in Ponsonby, and it's now forlorn and empty, and with a small building attached to it. Sister Cecil died in 1912. Her funeral was held at St Mary's in Parnell, and she's buried at Judges Bay. A chapel dedicated to St Michael and All Angels was erected in her memory next to the Richmond Road home in December 1913. And it's this chapel that's now used by the United Church of Tonga. And just to continue a bit more about the children's home, in 1927, newspaper owner Henry Brett died and his wife Mary subsequently offered their large home in Takapuna to the Church of England as new premises for the children's home. The Henry Brett Memorial Children's Home was opened in January 1930, with only girls living there. We're not quite sure what happened to the boys, but we think they may have gone out to live at the orphan home in Papatoitoi. Could we have the next slide, please? So, in 1858, in a cottage in central Auckland, a woman lay dying. In attendance were the Reverend John Lloyd, who was the vicar at St Paul's in Emily Place, and Dr Thomas Kinderdine. The woman was a widow, and she was fretting about what would happen to her three children after her death. But the Reverend Lloyd and Dr Kinderdine comforted her. They said they would guarantee the rent on her cottage and employ a woman to look after the children. And this was the beginning of the Church of England orphan home. By 1860, Kinderdine and Lloyd's orphan home had moved to a house in Grafton Road and opened its doors to other children, either found homeless in the streets or abandoned by their parents. And the administration of the home was taken over by the Church of England at this time. In 1866, the home moved to a site in Parnell where it remained for the next 40 years. And the top picture here is of that orphan home. Like the women's home, the, the orphan home had a ladies' committee, and, this, and it was pivotal in the home's daily life. In an extraordinary effort between 1863 and 1864, the committee, through fairs and bazaars and sales of needlework, had raised over £1,200 to pay for the entire cost of the buildings of the new orphan home. Once it opened, the women on the committee were concerned with domestic matters, which ensured that the home actually worked, keeping an eye on the preparation of food, for example, and laundry work, along with monitoring general maintenance, such as ensuring that the drains worked and the leaks were fixed. They also inspected the kitchen, visiting in pairs at least once a week, and kept an eye on what happened to the children once they left the home. Now, despite it being called an orphan home, not all of the children were orphans. The, the admissions book told each child's story in a few words. Reasons stated for children going to the home included found deserted in the streets, Father dead, mother unknown, mother keeps a brothel, and father dead, mother dying of consumption. In 1906, there was a fire at the Parnell home, which caused a lot of damage. And so after a couple of years of making do, the home moved to Wiley Road in Papatoitoi in April 1909. 
the two bottom photos here, um, the bottom right-hand photo shows the official opening of the Papatoitoi home in May 1909. And the home at that time could accommodate up to 65 children. Now, when you're writing a history of an organization like this, it's really important to include information as much as you can about the people who actually lived in these homes. But the children don't appear much in the board's annual reports, except indirectly through the list of gifts, which was also always included in those reports. In 1916, for example, that list included two tons of potatoes from a Mr. G. Richard, which was useful for the cook, but nowhere near as exciting for the children as the guinea pigs given by Mrs. J. Campbell and the Australian parrot from Mrs. Hugh Campbell. The children were taken on outings. They went on summer camps, for example, and they attended church, but they didn't mix much with children of their own age. They had their own school at the home in Parnell and Papatoitoi and their own Sunday school. Like most working class children, they began work at an early age. The girls going into domestic service and the boys into agricultural work, initially at age 10, later at 12, and then at 14. And it was rather an isolated childhood and one which relied on the benevolence of others. However, when the school leaving age was raised to 15 in 1944, the children from the home began to receive a secondary education. A very small number of boys had been sent to secondary school in previous years, but this was the first time that girls from the home were able to go to school past primary level. And they mostly traveled to Otahuhu Technical High School, as it was called then. So there were now young people living at the orphan home until they were 15 years old, whereas in the past they'd gone out to work at an earlier age. Children were accepted into the home from the age of two, so there was a really significant age range in the 73 children who'd lived, who lived there in 1949. Eleanor, Leslie and Christine were interviewed by Ruth for this book. In 1954, they'd been placed in the orphan home by their mother, who was recently divorced and, and unable to financially support her three daughters. Eleanor, who was 10 when she went to the home, recalls that she had to supervise the younger girls in her dormitory. Um, quoting from her here, I had to make sure that they made their beds properly and they polished the floor and did all of those work things they had to do. We also had to sit at the head of the table at night time, like for meals. And if they didn't eat their dinner, they had to stay there until they ate their dinner. If they didn't eat their dinner then, they had to have it again in the morning. Ellen also remembers having to help make the next day's lunches each afternoon when she returned home from school. She also helped the kitchen staff prepare vegetables for the evening meal and washed and dried the dishes after dinner. From how the three sisters described the daily return in the 1950s, little seems to have changed from earlier years. The children were out of bed by 6.30 a.m. They got dressed and had their breakfast and had some time for some chores before setting out for school. Once a week, they were dosed with castor oil. And I'm quoting from them here, the sisters here. They held your nose and put castor oil in your mouth. And then they were given a spoonful of malt extract afterwards to take away the unpleasant taste. Sisters also remember that the best meals were on Sundays with a roast dinner in the middle of the day and wonderful little pies and cakes and fruit for tea. Food on the other days was more ordinary, but they also remember that their birthdays were celebrated with a cake and a gift. So it wasn't an awful life, but it wasn't the same as being at home with their mother. In 1957, the Orphan Home Trust Board decided to work towards closing the large institutional building and move towards what they called family homes. 
smaller houses in the community with room for six or seven children where families could be kept together under the care of a house parent. And Ruth will talk more about these soon. As a result of that decision, the Papatoitoi Orphan Home closed its doors at the end of 1962. Now, the women's home had moved to Otahuhu in 1904 and became known as St Mary's Homes. Homes, because it continued the work of the women's home in providing refuge for erring women. I'm quoting there with erring. That is, unmarried mothers while they were pregnant and in the months after the birth. But it now also included a maternity home where the women could give birth. In the 1930s, the late 1930s, the maternity home was opened up to the public and it became a general nursing home. The bottom photograph here shows nurses with children. Sole mothers who'd given birth at St Mary's were able to board their children there while they went out to work. Now, when the 1955 Adoption Act came into effect, a certain amount of pressure, often unspoken, was put on sole mothers at the home to put their babies up for adoption. Anne Else has written an excellent history of closed stranger adoption, which covers the reasons why young unmarried mothers were encouraged to give up their children for adoption in the 1950s and 60s. And I'm not going to talk about it too much here. What I'm going to do instead is going to, I'm going to hand over to Ruth, who will take up the story from the 1970s on. So we begin um, in the 1970s, which was described as a time of changing social patterns. The traditional nuclear family was no longer the only model of family life, and the emancipation of women in Māori in particular challenged the role of welfare services provided by both the state and community agencies. The Department of Social Welfare was created in 1972. Until then, welfare services had been delivered as a branch of the Department of Education. So the increase in separation and divorce rates leading to the broken family unit was widely considered as a social malaise and a moral crisis. In 1973, the introduction of the domestic purposes benefit enabled women to leave broken marriages or violent relationships, and the first woman's refuge opened in Auckland in 1975. There was also need for a diversity of social services to become available at this time, such as counselling and daycare, neither of which had been delivered before as women had been expected to rely on the support of their own extended family. The ATWC opened its first daycare centre in Wotahu in 1976. Women were also demanding more freedom over their right to bodily autonomy through the use of contraception or abortion, as well as the choice to parent alone, to go out to work, to seek childcare. Some, some, however, still considered women's liberation as a devaluing of a woman's role as a housewife and even forcing women to apologize for their feminine traits. The term solo mum was first used in the 1970s. There was a tremendous social stigma attached to being a solo parent, let alone a teenage parent. Welfare recipients, primarily women, were still referred to as indignant or destitute and their children neglected and needy. 
The solo mum became known as the most vulnerable unit in the welfare system. As Megan mentioned, the ATWC created family homes. The St Mary's Home, Homes Trust and the Anglican Children's Trust amalgamated in 1975 to form the Anglican Trust for Women and Children. The trust had already been able to take children into custody or pseudo-guardianship, which had supported the creation of these family homes from the 1960s. By 1970, there were seven ATWC family homes spread across Auckland in Takapuna, Hearn Bay, Papatoitoi, Papakura, a boys' home in Kawakawa Bay, a girls' hostel and a family home in Epsom, and in 1974, there was another family home in Ellerslie. So by 1975, ATWC catered for up to 70 children a year across these homes. The referrals came from families, churches, communities, and the state. ATWC engaged married Christian couples to be the live-in parents at each home. This photo is of Catherine Begg. Um, she was married to Keith, and they were one such couple. Keith was working full-time while Catherine volunteered as the house mother. Catherine was then the second Māori house mother working for ATWC. She and Keith became known as Mata and Pata to the 10 to 12 children they had living with them. Some of the children's actual parents would come to visit at weekends. However, other children had no contact with their families until they left the home. Children would stay on average for six to 12 months. And during the school holidays, children were sent out to foster families. ATWC had a network of 40 foster care homes from Waikato to Northland. However, not all these placements went well and in later years, there were reports of abuse in some of the foster homes. The only criteria used for screening or becoming a foster parent was to be church going and an excellent upstanding member of the community. And foster care at the time was considered, and I quote, the purest kind of love. The Beggs were house parents at three homes over five years. Everything they had was catered for, right down to the toothpaste. All the food was donated, and Catherine had an older woman live in as a housekeeper. In an interview I conducted with Keith, he could remember Catherine being in her element, as she loved caring for the children they had in their care. In the 1970s, child psychology was a new way of thinking about children's behaviour and childcare. The Beggs were encouraged to undertake a course of study into child behaviour. The ATWC placed the child psychologist at one of the Beggs' home for a week to observe the children. And following that, they implemented a behavioural modification programme, which included rewards for good behaviour and punishment for bad, which unfortunately did include corporal punishment, use of the cane at the time. Keith and Catherine set up their own points scheme for good behaviour, which included rewards of sweets, staying up late, trips to the library, 
movies or late night shopping. The Department of Social Welfare began inspecting family homes in the community from 1979. Until then, agencies like ATWC had had free reign as to how they managed the service. These community-run homes closed down by the late 1980s due to the high costs of maintenance and the running of the homes, as well as ensuring monetary systems were in place to meet the newly introduced government accountability and reporting measures. And it was also now unrealistic to expect to find married couples to volunteer as these house parents. So moving back to the St. Mary's Home for Unwed Mothers, I'll start with by saying that abortion became legal in New Zealand in 1978. Before that, women needed to raise funds to travel overseas for an abortion. And this was made possible with the support of the Sisters Overseas Service. The other alternative at the time was giving birth and having your child put up for adoption. ATWC had recreated a birthing unit attached to the home in Otahuhu. Still, it was never used and was closed down in 1974. The Hospital Amendment Act at the time prevented births from taking place in privately run facilities. So instead, the ATWC built several self-contained flats on site at Otahuhu for the new mums. ATWC then asked the Begs, Keith and Catherine, to ma manage St Mary's home. They agreed, but just as they were moving on site, Catherine was called away to a tangi in Gisborne, and while she was there, she died. Her body was brought back to St Mary's home and her tangi took place in Otahuhu. All the young mothers attended. Keith continued for a while, but eventually left so that a replacement couple could take over the role of parents. He remembers, however, taking several young parent teenagers to the Otara Mall to go clothes shopping. Now I'm going to tell you about Sally. Um, this is another person I interviewed for the book. Sally came to St Mary's home in 1975 after Keith had left. She was 19 years old and five months pregnant. Her adoptive mother did not want Sally to keep the baby as she had just started her nurse's training. In an interview for the book, Sally recalled feeling that the whole thing was an ordeal which needed to be endured and that she had to obey her parents' wishes to come home and then get on with her life. When she arrived at the home, she remembers it being like an army barrack, very bare and uncomfortable. It was only when a new matron named Sister Arles arrived at the place that it became much brighter and more homelike. The sister introduced new colourful bedspreads, toys for the girls, some of whom were as young as 14, put art on the walls, games, and a television set. Sally never saw her baby once he was born. He was just taken away. But she did discover an entry in the register at the home for her own birth mother, who had given birth to her at St Mary's home in 1955. The entry said that she had been wronged in the domain at the age of 16. 
Sally did not know what this meant at the time. But you may be able to draw your own conclusions as to what that may have meant. Sally did try to search for her birth mother once she married and had two more children, but she never got a response. She did finally find her son 30 years after he was born, and they now have a close relationship. Sally has no regrets as to how things turned out, but the ATWC has, in the past 20 years, received complaints about adoption by stealth, or as it's become known, forced adoption. Adoption in New Zealand slowed down dramatically by 1978. St Mary's home closed in 1981 and was replaced by St Mary's Family Centre, which opened in 1983. The centre is known today as Mary's Place and still provides parenting courses, counselling, budget advice and daycare centre. The Friends of ATWC Charitable Trust was established in 1974 to raise funds for the ATWC. By 1977, there were 1,500 members, primarily women from across the Anglican parishes of Auckland. In the photo on, of the three women on the right-hand side, um, the, the first one on the left is Leslie Anderson. She became a friend in 2000 and the chair of the trust in 2016. Nan Woods joined in the early 2000s, as did Mary Thompson. All three women have liaised with other women across parishes who have formed knitting and sewing groups. They've posted the ATWC monthly magazine Caring, held fundraising events such as theatre nights, cooking with famous chefs, art exhibitions, selling Ruth Pretty Christmas cakes, organising winter pyjama appeals, donations of food, and much more. For many years now, all three women have also acted as surrogate grandmothers to the single mums living at the only residential home still run by ATWC at Otahuhu called Granger Road. This has included teaching these mums how to cook a roast meal and providing gifts to the children and much needed items for the households. Lastly, I'd like to talk about women's leadership at ATWC. In um, the photo on the left, the, old, the older woman on the far left, that is Keitha Weir. She became the first female chair of the ATWC Trust Board in 1984. Keitha was born in 1918, the only daughter of a major general. She trained as a Karatani nurse and was in active service during World War II as a welfare office for the British Army in India. She also worked with the Allied Occupation Forces after the war in Germany and the UK, and then for the international YWCA in Sri Lanka and Burma before returning to New Zealand in 1950. At the time, there were a number of people who had had such backgrounds who became leaders and management figures at ATWC. Keitha then worked for the Department of Education and later the Department of Social Welfare as a child welfare officer, a position that she held for 28 years. She then joined the Anglican Children's Trust Board in 1972 before becoming the chair of ATWC. And in 1982, she received a QSM for her services to the community. The woman standing next to her 
presenting her actually with a farewell gift is Tina Wilson, who also became a chair in 1993. In the middle photo is Diane Kenderdine, who followed Tina and became the chair in 2000. Diane had married into the Kenderdine family. The original Dr. Kenderdine who helped establish the orphan home in 1858. Diane, has, she went on to marry his great grandson. Diane had worked with Keith Aware as a social worker in Otahu during the 70s and 80s. Then during her time as the chair, ATWC faced several legal challenges, including historic complaints of abuse from former clients, and a parting of ways with one of its groundbreaking services called Te Whare Ruruho or Meri, which was the Māori social services arm of the trust at the time. This service now operates independently of AGWC. Diane received the New Zealand Order of Merit in 2018 for her services to community. And in this last photo is Judy Mataya, she is the first Pacifica female to become CEO at ATWC. She came to New Zealand from Samoa in 1972. Judy started at ATWC in 2005 as a practice manager, then an operations manager, and finally the role of CEO in 2014. She still holds the position to the present day. I'd like to finish, finish my presentation with a quote from Judy in the last chapter of the book. She says, the economic and health struggles facing families sadly continues today. Families experiencing hardship and poverty, children going without, fragmented family units due to family harm and addiction, families in cold, damp housing, and families desperately searching for affordable housing. These societal stresses continue to plague the communities we live in. So what is the light at the end of this tunnel? Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening today. To watch recordings of the Heritage Talks, visit the Auckland Library's YouTube channel, Matiwa. Goodbye for now.